Amen. Well, something to remember uh, in the book of Jeremiah is that it is not a chronological text. It's difficult to work out the order of events. The book starts with a real introduction in chapter 1. As we saw last week, the call of Jeremiah, who is but a boy, and then chapters 2 to 6 really function as a kind of a summary of the book. Well, in chapters 7 to 10, which we're looking at today, we're going to jump ahead a few years, and we're going to read of a message given to Jeremiah by God to be preached at the gates of the temple. Now, to prove that Jeremiah is not a chronological text, chapter 26 of Jeremiah is the same sermon. But it also fills in some of the details for us. Uh, we find out that we're no longer in the reign of Josiah, the last righteous king of Judah. Uh, he is dead. He is injured in the battle of Megiddo against Egypt, who are allies with Assyria. And he dies then in a, in, back in Jerusalem. And all the reforms that Josiah had made, well, they're gone with him. After Josiah dies, Jehoaz is the new king. And he reigns well for a full three months. But he has a chance to reign like Josiah, to continue the reforms, but instead we read in 2 Kings 23 that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, Jehoahaz gets captured by Egypt and he's taken there where he dies and then Jehoiakim becomes the new king. In fact, Jehoiakim is made the king by the Egyptians, by Pharaoh Necho, and he reigns for 11 years now, again, he has an opportunity to reign as a righteous king. But instead, we're told in 2 Kings 23 that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That was a recurring phrase for many of the kings. Now, chapter 26 of Jeremiah tells us that we are now in the early reign of Jehoiakim. The reforms that Josiah had begun are still in effect somewhat. Well, the temple's been rebuilt, they have the temple. Worship has continued, but not in the right way. Their hearts are far from God. Yet because they have the temple, they think they are safe. And so it's to this temple that Jeremiah must go and preach this message of judgment. We've got three points this morning. I'm sorry that I don't have a PowerPoint for you today. I had every intention of doing one, but uh, I don't. Uh, our first point is looking at Jer uh, Jeremiah 7 to 8, verse 17. Uh, and we're going to look at Judah's false reliance on the temple uh, and the word. Judah's false reliance on the temple and the word. So we see in 7, verse 2, that Jeremiah gives the sermon at the gates of the temple. And this would have been the perfect position for Jeremiah to, to be, as that would be the best place to reach the most amount of people, either directly as the people hear the message from Jeremiah's lips as they enter and leave the temple, or indirectly as this message travels out to family and friends about the outrageous things that Jeremiah has been saying. Now, Jeremiah 26 is helpful again because it records their response they do not receive this message well. In fact, they try to kill Jeremiah. But as we see from chapter 1, God has promised Jeremiah protection. Well, what is this message? The message is that their reliance on worshipping at the temple and having God's word will not save them from the coming judgment of the Babylonians and the exiles. Let's have a look at 7 verse 8. By the way, I'm using the ESV again. It's not too much different, but just if you notice some different words, I'm using the ESV. Jeremiah 7, 8, Behold, 
You trust in deceptive words to no avail. What are their deceptive words? Look back at verse 4. This is the people, this is the crowd, this is their response to Jeremiah's message. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. But Jeremiah says, do not trust in these deceptive words. They are deceptive because the temple of the Lord will not save them from the Babylonians. But God isn't just condemning them. No, the message that Jeremiah is preaching is very clear about what they need to do. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. So look at verses 5 to 7. That spells out what those deeds are. These are the things that they need to amend. Act with justice toward one another. Do not oppress the weak or the vulnerable or the homeless. Do not be violent against the innocent or shed their blood. Do not worship false gods and participate in their cultures that bring harm to you. And yet willfully, willfully they continue in disobedience. But it's okay, they say, because why? We have the temple of the Lord. They trust in those deceptive words, but to no avail. Hear the accusation then from God in verse 9. Will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery? Will you swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? You see, they've broken almost every one of the Ten Commandments, topping it off with the worshipping of the most vile of foreign gods, committing atrocious and idolatrous acts in, the name, uh, in His name, and then they have the audacity to go to the temple of the one true God and say, verse 10, we are delivered. They think they are safe because God is in the temple, but they're not. Like a den of robbers hiding from justice after their cruel and wicked acts. And we see that Jesus uses the same analogy when he cleanses the temple from the moneylenders. But God is watching, Jeremiah says in verse 11. You can't hide your wickedness. Well, verses 12 to 15, he uses here a reference to Shiloh. This was a place north of Israel. Uh, it's already fallen under Assyrian rule. But before that, Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant stayed for well, quite a few hundred years. Near the end of the book of Joshua, we see that the tabernacle is set up at Shiloh. And inside the tabernacle is, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. And it stays there during the entire reign of the judges. And then in 1 Samuel 1, we see that the house of the Lord is still in Shiloh. And the Ark of the Covenant is there. And as Samuel is brought up in the house of the Lord uh, by Eli, we learn that it finally leaves when it's taken up by Eli's really wicked priestly sons. And they take it up against the Philistines, trusting that they have God with them. You could almost imagine them saying, we have the Ark of the Covenant, we have the Ark of the Covenant, we have the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, they are wicked and evil in the sight of the Lord and so against the Philistines, they are actually killed. And the Ark of the Covenant is captured, and it never returns again to Shiloh. Here's what Jeremiah is saying. He says, you think you are safe because you have the temple? Think again. What God did to Shiloh, he will do here. And he will cast you out of his sight. Well, not only do they think that they are safe because they have the temple... Well, they also believe that they have the right interpretation of God's Word. Look at chapter 8, verse 8. 
How can you say we are wise? For we have the law of the Lord. When actually the lying pen of the scribes have handled it falsely. Now you see, once King Josiah had rebuilt the temple and found the law of Moses, he set about the reforms, urging Judah to turn back to God. However, after his death, well, the priests did not handle the law correctly. They didn't teach the full counsel of God. They picked the good bits, the it's going to go well with you bits, but they left out the conditions. They avoided the warnings and the consequences for disobedience. Again, in Jeremiah 10, 21, we, we see the condemnation over the leaders of Judah who, who did not lead the people well, who didn't inquire of God how they should live, but instead they led their people to destruction. But contrast that with King Josiah, who was an 18-year-old, young in the eyes of the world, but he utterly destroys all the idols and worship places of foreign gods, and he also has the priests killed who led the people astray, and he does all this before the book of the law is even found. But when the book is found, Hilkiah the priest reads it to him, and this is his immediate response from 2 Kings uh, 23. When King Josiah heard the words of the law being read, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah to go, inquire of the Lord for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. The Lord is very angry with us because our ancestors did not obey the Lord's word. They did not do everything that this book says to do. So Josiah, without the law, well, he does an amazing job. He gets rid of all the idols, he rebuilds the temple, and yet when God's word is read to him, well, he's cut to the heart because he sees that they still have not obeyed all of it. And Judah has well and truly turned their back on God, and yet, yet they have every ability to make it right. They do have the temple. They do have the word of the Lord. But they have not obeyed it. They have rejected it. And we know from Proverbs that wisdom is from fearing the Lord and obeying His commandments, but they do neither. Now, here's the really shocking bit. God tells Jeremiah, do not pray for them, verse 16. You see that? Three times he says, do not pray for them. It would have been natural for a prophet to pray. But understand why God tells Jeremiah not to pray. Verse 17, God asks, do you not see what they are doing? Look at them. Look carefully at what they're doing. Do you not see it? We've already seen how they're breaking the commandments, the moral laws which keep order in society, which protect the vulnerable and the weak. But also verse 18, have a look. We see how their sin affects the family, the very foundation of every society, children collecting wood, fathers making a fire, mothers kneading dough so they can bake cakes for foreign gods. But that fire won't stop at the cakes. Look at verse 30. The utter depravity of their sin, the conclusion of their idolatry. Verse 30, for the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. Sacrificing their children on the altars of foreign gods, literally building their own, burning their own children up for their safety. And God has said enough. 
these people will face the consequences of their sin. Do not pray for them, because I will not listen. In fact, verse 21, he says, keep, keep your sacrifices. Make yourself a barbecue. You know, eat, eat the food. I don't want it, because it's not going to save you. Friends, no religious ritual or sacred place is enough. It never was enough. When God had brought them up out of Egypt, it was only in chapter 25 of Exodus that he gave them a place to worship, that he gave them a tent and a tabernacle. Before he even gave a law, God had done all the work in saving them and sustaining them. And then after that, he calls for their obedience. Keep my covenant, obey me, and then you will be my treasured possession, Exodus 19. Only then, after that, does he give them a place to worship. But before that, it's obedience, to walk in my ways. Well, how similar is the society that we live in? Here's the biggest challenge to us as a church. For years and years, we are being bombarded with a culture that tells us all manner of activities and behaviors are sacred and good. But friends, when last did we see Satan truly as a deceitful enemy prowling around us, causing us to stumble and fall, and we don't fight back? Instead, so often what we do is we end up defending the culture. Often we defend it because we like it, because we enjoy it. Or we defend it because we say, oh, love. Well, no, love other people, yes, but... Don't love sin. We must hate that. We must hate it. How do we show the world that we truly are different? I dare to say that too many Christians look too much like the world. Well, we don't have a special building. The tent, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the temple, these things were never going to be permanent. But what they did do was they pointed to the true temple. They pointed to Jesus. And in this world, we need to recognize that our sin is great. And we ought to come to Jesus in confession of our sins first, turning away from sin towards His grace and forgiveness, where we are united to Him in faith, and we are ourselves built together with Him as a holy temple, where then we are able to point other people to Jesus. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 21, So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, friends, you are a part of the holy temple. So then you need to be honest with the idolatrous things that you attempt to put in that temple. And then once you're honest with it, then get rid of them. Destroy them. Flee from them. And then point a watching and hurting and confused world to Jesus. Secondly, we're going to see Jeremiah's grief and God's character. We're looking now from chapter 8.18 to 9.26. Jeremiah's grief and God's character. Now in chapters 8 to 10, we do see this repetitive nature of the message, God's inescapable judgment, because they weren't listening. 
And so God is making sure that those listening to Jeremiah and those in exile afterwards, and even us today as we read these words, that we would be absolutely clear that God does take sin seriously. But we do see, however, from these chapters, a, a change of tone, perhaps. We see grief being displayed on the part of Jeremiah. He is known as the weeping prophet, after all. But I think we also see God's character in this. Now, it's hard to decide that as we read this, are we hearing the voice of Jeremiah or are we hearing the voice of God? But I don't think we actually need to decide that. The voice of Jeremiah expresses the heart of God. You see, God is also the one who is grieving. Yes, he is angry and full of wrath throughout these chapters, and rightfully so, at the wickedness of his people. But he is also sad and full of grief. But God's wrath on his people and his love for his people, they're not mutually exclusive. This is what J.C. Ryle wrote. He says, Beware of manufacturing a God of your own, a God who is all mercy but not just, a God who is all love but not holy, a God who has a heaven for everybody but a hell for none. Such a God is an idol of your own, as truly as an idol as any snake or crocodile in an Egyptian temple the hands of your own fancy and sentimentality have made him. He is not the God of the Bible. And, inside, and beside the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. You see, the God of the Bible feels both anger and deep sorrow over his people's sins. So verse 18 of chapter 8, it is God's heart that is faint and sick within him. Sick within him. Verse 21, it is God's heart that is wounded and crushed. It is God who mourns. Chapter 9, verse 1, it is God who weeps as he rightly punishes his people. Chapter 9, verse 10, we see again that it is God who weeps and wails as he punishes his people. Friends, we must have in our theology of God the idea that he is not unmoved by our actions or indifferent to our sin. We are created in His image. We are His people. If we have emotions, it is because He had emotions first. So God isn't just angry over our sin, but He grieves over our sin. He weeps. He knows the consequences of our sin. God's wrath is not devoid of His love. But we see in the Scriptures today that they are perfectly in tension with one another. God weeps. And we see in the New Testament how Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Primarily because he understood the nature of death. We see how Jesus weeps over the cities because he knew the judgment that was coming. He weeps at the effect of sin as it destroys us. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 21. The reality of death. For death has come into our windows. It has entered into our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. God grieves at the effects of human sin. Death is the consequence for our sin, and death will not spare anyone. Well, maybe you're asking the question at this point, and you should be, where's the hope? Where's the mercy? Is there any grace left? Well, throughout these passages, we do see glimpses. Turn back to God. Turn back. Even the animals know how to turn back in 8 verse 7. But the people rejected God. But this was written down for the exiles to know that they could turn back to God. And it's written down for us to know that we can turn back. 
This is where the grace of God is so powerful. This is where the love of God is made so clear to us. And that is in the person of Jesus. That he would die in our place. That the punishment for sin, the wrath of God would not fall on us, but instead on Jesus. That death would even strike him and yet he would prevail. And he would prevail so that we would boast in him for our salvation. So look at verse 24 of chapter 9. But let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Notice that Paul uses these very words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27 to 31. This is what Paul writes. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, it is at the cross where wrath and mercy meet. It is at the cross where God punishes and God saves. It is at the cross where we take our sin and we leave with hope. So let's not boast in ourselves. Let's not boast in our religion. Let's not boast in our man-made structures and, and religious practices. Let us boast in the God. Sorry, let us not boast in a God of our own imaginations. And far be it, let us never, ever boast in our own sin. But let us boast in Jesus our Savior, as we turn back to Him. And that's the message throughout this passage in Jeremiah, that we can turn back. We're going to finish on chapter 10. This is our third point this morning. Judah's false gods and their future exile. See, while there is hope for us, we see that for Judah, they won't turn back. Destruction and exile will be their reward as they continue to reject God in favor of idolatrous worship. So in these last few chapter, uh, verses of chapter 10, we're going to see now the contrast between idols and God. We're going to see that idols are impotent and they are things that are made by human hands. They're like, verse 5, cucumbers, uh, sorry, scarecrows in a cucumber field, presumably pointless. We're not to be afraid of them. They can't do anything, and really, we're supposed to laugh at the ridiculousness of it. Verse 14, we see the utter stupidity of man as he creates these images with no breath in them. Uh, ladies, verse 14 is for you. Uh, the NIV doesn't quite get the meaning there. It's literally, every man is stupid. Uh, so that's a free one for you. Um, but jokes aside, how can a man-made image ever compare to the glory of God who created all things? Instead, verses 6 to 7, we see how truly great God is. He is the one to be feared, not idols. He was not made by human hands, but he is the one who made human hands. Compare that to verse 10. He is the Lord, the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Now, verses 11 to 13, we see that these idols, well, they're doomed for destruction. And interestingly, verse 11 is in Aramaic. It's the only verse there that's in Aramaic. Everything else is in Hebrew in Jeremiah. 
This is what verse 11 says. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. I think this is in Aramaic because it is the language of the nations, or it would become the language of the nations, the language that half the world would come to speak with all their gods. And certainly the current enemies of Judah would know Aramaic, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, they all know it. But that they should know that their gods are fake. They did not make the heavens and the earth, and they will perish where are those gods today? These gods from the world's most powerful nations for centuries, they're gone. They're no longer worshipped today. But friends, the problem of our human heart is that we attempt to resurrect them by different names. Dawn Dawn and I have just come from a culture that bows every day to statues made by human hands. And one of the saddest things that we saw was a parent one day teaching her child how to pray at the temple how to bow to the statue. And our hearts were so sad. As we walked around this temple, we noticed something very interesting. You see, in Buddhism, much focuses on enlightenment and escaping the trappings of this world. And yet, as we walked around this temple, we noticed the different kinds of enlightened beings. As they bowed to the different bodhavistas for health and for power and for wealth and for happiness. It doesn't sound like escaping the trappings of the earth to me. And then we laugh and we shake our heads and we go, oh, how foolish, you worship idols made by men. They're but scarecrows. But friends, before we laugh at them and before we grieve for them, let us laugh at ourselves and let us grieve for ourselves because we do exactly the same thing. Let us remember that idolatry is subtle. Health and happiness and wealth and power, those are our idols. Tell me you've never worshipped the altar of health, of happiness, of money? Oh, we may not bow physically, but we bow in the heart. We bow in the heart. We bow in our devotion to those things. We bow every day to them when Jesus becomes second to those things. We bow. Oh, we're not foolish enough to have statues. Our, Our idols aren't statues. But as Calvin said, no, the production of our idols starts in the factory of the human heart. Our idols are what we spend all of our time and devotion on without God at the center. Friends, even good things that God has given us can become idols. Our children can become idols to us. We must recognize these different kinds of idols in our lives. We must do what Josiah did, utterly get rid of them. But the one thing Josiah could not do was change the hearts of his people. Jeremiah 9, 25-26, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair, For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Notice that Judah is lumped in with the other nations. There will be no salvation from their outward display of religion. It is their hearts that must be circumcised. And friends, the same is true for us. You can follow all the rites. You can be baptized. You can take communion. You can come to church week week. Uh, You can wear the fanciest of clothes. 
and yet you can still not love Jesus. Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, idols can't just be removed, but they must be replaced. Yes, we want our idols to be removed, but we also want to replace them with the love of God in Christ. See, we remove fake idols by replacing them with something far greater. That's how we do it. Verse 16, God reminds the whole nation of Israel, those who are already destroyed in the north and those of Judah who are about to be destroyed, he reminds them that they are still his people. They are still his inheritance. Verse 16 says, He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. Friends, this is a wonderful reminder of God's grace. He reminds Israel that he belongs to them and they belong to him. Even through the coming destruction and exile, through their punishment, he will be their God and they will be his people. Friends, Israel did not deserve to be God's people. They did not deserve him. They did not deserve him as an inheritance and to be called his people. But please note that from their mess comes Jesus and he comes to save. Friends, we're not unlike Israel. We don't deserve the goodness of God, and yet in Christ, we become his inheritance and his treasured possession. We become his portion. We're going to close now, but let me close on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. This is what Paul writes. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray.